You're listening to the Create What You Speak podcast, where I invite you to come along with me as we shape our own reality together. My intention is to bring out the magic in you. Now let's get started. Run away from the humdrum. We'll go to a place that is safe from greed, anger, and boredom. We'll dance and sing till sundown and peace with abandon. We'll sleep when the morning comes and we'll rise by the sound of the bird song. My name is Sloane Fremont, and today I'm going to talk to you about strengthening through listening. Welcome to another episode of the Create What You Speak podcast. My name is Sloan Fremont, and I am the host of the show. And this week, I have a special guest I'm really excited to talk to. I have Mr. Kevin Hancock today, and Kevin is an award-winning author, speaker, and CEO of Hancock Lumber. Established in 1848, Hancock Lumber operates 10 retail stores, three sawmills, and a trust plant. The company also grows trees on 12,000 acres of timberland in southern Maine and is led by its 550 employees. Kevin is a past chairman of the National Lumber and Building Materials Dealers Association. He's also a recipient of the Ed Muskie Access to Justice Award, the Habitat for Humanity Spirit of Humanity Award, and the Boy Scouts of America Distinguished Citizen Award, as well as Timber Processing Magazine's Man of the Year. And Kevin has two books he's written. The first one was Not for Sale, Finding Center in the Land of Crazy Horse, which won three National Book Awards. And his second book, The Seventh Power, One CEO's Journey into the Business of Shared Leadership, released earlier this year. Kevin is also a frequent visitor to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota and an advocate of strengthening the voices of all individuals within a company or a community through listening, empowering, and shared leadership. So we get to talk to Kevin this week, and I'm really excited. Kevin, welcome to the show. Sloan, thank you so much. I'm very happy to be with you. Yay. All right. Well, I'm just going to get right into the questions I have for you here. So let's start out by talking about um, in 2010, you acquired a rare voice disorder known as spasmodic dysphonia. So how did you respond to that experience? Can we talk a little bit about that and how that impacted you and your leadership style? Sure. First, it really threatened my leadership style, Mm -hmm. and then it revolutionized it. So uh, that came on for me at the peak of the housing and mortgage market crisis. And for a lumber company, that was a really traumatic economic event. So right at this really kind of threatening time, I, I... suddenly began to have quite a bit of trouble speaking. And at first, I didn't know what was going on. But after going to a bunch of doctors, I was finally diagnosed. And so something I'd always done a lot of as a CEO talk, I suddenly couldn't (laughs) really do. And I'd always taken my voice for granted, as most people do. Right, for sure. Yeah, it wasn't there. And at first, I laugh about this now, Sloan, but first I said to myself, well, what possible good could a CEO be who can't talk all the time? <laughs> but in that rhetorical question was really 
the opportunity. So let me just describe what I what I did at first. At first, yeah, I, I, I'm really curious about that because I'm thinking about that happened to yeah. me. Where, where do you start? Like, where, where do you even? How do you? Yeah, I guess that's what I. What would I even do? Right. Yeah. First, I kind of went into survival mode, and uh, it was really pretty simple. When it's hard to talk, you develop strategies for doing less of it. And my mm. primary strategy was to answer a question with a question, thereby putting the conversation, the responsibility for speaking back on the other person. Mm-hmm. So picture this age-old setting. Someone comes up to me at work because I'm the CEO or one of the quote-unquote bosses with a question or a problem. Normally, I would have given a directive and an answer Mm -hmm. and an instruction. And now I started simply saying, well, that is a good question. What do you think we should do about it? Right. And. And while at first that was just a move to protect my voice, what really struck me over time uh, was simply this. People already knew what to do. When I gave them the opportunity to respond, I found that they already knew what to do. They didn't need a top-down kind of leadership directive after all. What they really needed was kind of permission and safety Mm -hmm. and encouragement to trust and follow their own voice. And I'm sure that that also that feeling of empowerment by being asked their opinion or their thoughts or, you know, actually and actually being heard. Right. There's a lot of power in that that I don't think most people see or feel, you know, most days with their jobs. See, you've hit the crux of it right there. That's to fast forward to what I learned and then have doubled down on again and again since is the the simple power of respecting and including everybody's voice and treating everybody in the company as an important leader. And so how it ended up changing my leadership style over time was it completely flipped. And I really now think about executive leadership as being about dispersing power, not collecting it. And Mm -hmm. I really ultimately came to see my own voice condition as a bit of an invitation to strengthen the voices of others. Right. And so how did that, because that's been 10 years ago now, and so how did that change the culture of your company? Yeah, it ended up revolutionizing it, long story short. Now, that, that was a long journey, but we're a decade into this, and we've been a, a best place to work in Maine for seven consecutive years. So our, our employee engagement scores are running close to 90%, meaning wow. nine out of 10 people that work here consider themselves highly engaged. And our corporate performance uh, improved dramatically, it doubled and it doubled again. And it doubled again. So what was really interesting is, is as a company, as a corporate leader, I really shifted my focus to the kind of the well-being and the voice of the employees. Mm-hmm. And in return, the employees 
just really took a deep, deep ownership, if you will, kind of spiritual ownership right. in their own work and the performance of the company. So by focusing a bit less on the needs of the company and a bit more on the needs of the individuals within the company, the company ended up uh, becoming a big beneficiary of that in return. Right. I can see that. And, you know, and I'm thinking as you're talking through this, I'm picturing my own self in a position like that to be able to ask my opinion and, and be heard, you know, because I think about positions I had over the years where that's often why I left because I didn't feel heard. I didn't feel like anybody took the suggestion seriously, you know, especially, um, when often, you know, maybe upper management would be so far removed from the person who's actually doing the job that they and they would make decisions, but they wouldn't really understand what that impact had for the person doing the job. And there's a lot of frustration around that or, you know, it just becomes one of those things. Then you question, why am I here? Right. And and that and that's the flip side of what, you know, you're talking about. You completely changed everything. So it is that other side where then everyone feels no, I have, I have ownership in this. Like I, I get to see my idea through, or I get to, you know, somebody's listening to me, which is, I think just first off, wonderful, awesome. <laughs> but also just, it, it's a, it's something that um, I also don't think most people think about. I think people are just used to not being heard or used to coming in and, you know, maybe just going through the motions of a job. That, that so well said, I, I agree with everything you just said. Sloan, you know, if you look nationally at engagement levels at work, it runs about 33%. Like two mm -hmm. out of three people aren't really into their job. And when you think about why, I think it comes right down to this subject. It's because they don't feel authentically heard. And you can say, well, what's the economic cost of that? Mm -hmm. And it's significant. But to me, more importantly, you can say, should say, what is the social, human, spiritual cost of that in the modern world? And I've really come to summarize that in the form of a single rhetorical question. What if everybody on earth felt trusted, respected, valued, oh. and heard. Yeah. Oh my God. What, Wouldn't it be such a change? different place? Right. Right. Yes. For sure. Well, and I think I feel like, um, you know, with everything going on, you know, just how much 2020 changed to me, everything, right? Like everyone's outlooks are like, I, I feel like at least for me right now, I'm going through, I'm questioning everything, right? I feel like everything that I thought I knew is maybe not as I thought it was. And this question that you just asked, what would everybody feel like if they were heard, if they were actually more empowered, right? And and I think that's, you know, a lot of um, maybe what we're seeing right now is is the frustration of years and years and years of that, right? Not, not being able to do that. And, and the shift we might have as, <laughs> as a human race, if that happened, boy, I think that would just blow our minds. Yeah, I love, I love that uh, question. And, and I think that's right. I, I think I thought quite a bit about the Aquarian age that we're entering and what it's all about. And I think it's really going to be uh, a transformation from a society in which individuals were taught to uh, sacrifice themselves mm -hmm. for the empire mm -hmm. 
towards uh, flipping that script and organizations learning to serve the individuals that belong to them. I do think more and more people are awakening to the sacredness of the individual human spirit. And I think more and more individuals are raising their expectations about what life should be like, including what work should be like. Yes. And, you know, I thought the same as soon as the whole, you know, back in March, when everything, you know, shut down, what was supposed to be two weeks, and here we are, what, six months now, but um, when practically overnight, everybody went to working from home. And and I, I remember thinking about that, like, wow, this has to change everything for people, right? People who were maybe wanting this and now they were getting it or, you know, all the money that companies spent to allow people to do that, right? It, it's it's not, um, you know, that happened overnight and it happened so fast that it, it was almost one of those things like, I'm not sure it caught, like it, people had a chance to process it, right? Because it happened so fast. But just what you were talking about with people being more awake to, to that there's a different way to do things, I think, is um, that's what I have sort of been feeling like 2020 is about, right? Like getting that um, 2020 vision on things, right? Seeing things more clearly than we ever have in the past. And now, while, you know, it, things are crazy, maybe would be the word to solve it or sum it up, I mean, but it, it it's taken that to get, people to be able to see that, I guess, is one of the ways I've been feeling about it. Yes, I feel the same way. I think there's an awakening occurring across society globally. And I think that uh, it creates an opportunity and a necessity to be, and think very differently about the plates of work and its mission and purpose and mm-hmm. simply put to me uh, the place of work should be meaningful for the people who do it mm-hmm. it is an economic exercise but it should be much more than just an economic exercise right so you also one of the things um that I read about you and, and I know you have a book. I think your book is based on this, on your experience at the Pine Ridge um, Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Can you yes. talk a little bit about that? What brought you there and, and what did you learn from your time there or have you learned? Yeah, it was quite uh, unexpectedly delightful. So around 2012, when the economy had stabilized and I could see that our own company was you know, going to be fine and and go forward. I really felt this desire to kind of take a bit of time for myself and Mm -hmm. search for my voice, if you will, on a a literal spiritual level. And I didn't know how I was going to do that, but I'd always had a love affair with the American West and uh, particularly the second half of the 19th century history when America's kind of Western expansion manifest destiny ran into the Plains Indians. Anyway, I picked up in the summer of 2012 a copy of National Geographic, which was about focused on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. And I read that article and I just decided on an absolute spontaneous whim that I was going to go there. I wanted to see what life was like for the people who lived there. A few months mm-hmm. later, I did. Then I went back, and then I went back, and I've now been there over uh, 20 times. But here was the 
connection that really hooked me. At Pine Ridge, I met an entire community that didn't feel fully heard. Mm -hmm. As a result of my own voice condition at the time, I understood what it was like to not feel heard. And in a very different way, here was this community that had been really historically egregiously marginalized and felt as if a piece of their voice had been taken from them. And it really got me thinking about the fact that there are lots of ways for humans to lose some of their authentic voice in this world. Mm -hmm, and that mm -hmm. unfortunately, Sloan, across time, leaders of established organizations had often done more to limit, restrict, and direct the voices of others than to liberate them or free them or encourage their authenticity. Yes, I agree 100% with that. <laughs> yes. And that's unfortunate. I mean, it's, 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 it, you know, and I feel like when those things happen, um, it, it's almost human nature or, or the, the first reaction is to feel like there's no, where, where do I turn now? Right? Like, what can I do? Like, I don't have control over this. So, you know, that loss of control, which makes you feel even worse about the situation, right? Because you feel like there's, you have no say in it. And I think that's as a human, that's one of the worst things that we can feel or experience is just feeling like we don't have a say in it. That that's so well put and so appropriate for these tribal communities on the Northern Plains. So before the reservation era, they were free and self-governed and self-sufficient uh, and prosperous, you know, in their own world. But mm -hmm. post-conquest and colonization and genocide and generations of being governed from away and being remade as white people, um, mm -hmm. you know, they, they lost a lot of that sense of autonomy and personal power. It still mm -hmm. dwells within everybody there, but, but um, oppression, you know, those with power going too far and abusing it, it really can have a deep, deep systemic generational impact on those that are being taken advantage of. Yeah. And you know what is, as you re you talk about this and, and I think about this kind of stuff, it, it's, these kinds of things seem to happen like they just get chipped away, right? It's something that at first maybe doesn't seem, maybe it's okay, I don't like this, but then it's over time, the continuous chipping away, right? At, whatever it is, right? Even anything for any human experience is having that. Um, and then you look back and it's like, wait a minute, how did we get here? You know? And it, it seems that those, like you're talking about those voices that um, are there to supposed to help are the, the worst offenders of these kinds of behaviors. Yeah. Uh, yes, it, it, exactly. Exactly. It's the cumulative weight of everything that's done across time that, that can produce a, a dramatically heartful or challenging mm -hmm. impact upon a community like the people uh, at Pine Ridge have experienced. And so your, your time there, and you've been back there many times, so what was your, what keeps you coming back? And what was your, 
maybe if there's a a lesson you learned from it or a or something that that you take with you each time you come back from there what would that be yeah really it was two things one from my own voice experience i really became a bit of a champion of communities didn't feel like they had a voice mm-hmm. whether that was an employee group or a tribal reservation community and really makes me want to advocate for leadership change transformation in the way leaders engage communities but the second part of it was uh, that place and those people and their history and their spirituality was just really generative for me and i actually have come to believe that they are Uh, the keepers of some really important indigenous wisdom that the modern world actually needs. Mm -hmm. I've gotten really interested in in any community that that lived intimately with nature, lived and died with nature. And I think that when uh, communities immerse themselves that way that you end up really synchronizing with kind of the sacred rules of nature and how mm-hmm. nature works and flows and how mm-hmm. we're a part of it. And I think that um, those understandings are actually super important for the human race in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Right. No, I agree with that. And I think that um, those kinds of things that, you know, the nature, I think, means different things to different people, right, depending on where you grew up. So nature might mean, um, you know, just going out in the yard to someone, or it might mean, you know, thousands of acres that they're able to roam free in. And I think in whatever that means to anybody is is fine. It's their, you know, it's their experience with it. But when we you know, forget things like that over time, you know, we do, we lose a big part of, I think, who we are as, as people, because that, that's part of the rhythm of life, I guess. I've always felt that way, at least. Right. I, I share that. And I'll, I'll just share one quick example. The Sioux believe that uh, everything that exists is related and interconnected, that uh, mm-hmm. they use the phrase, which means, uh, we're all brothers or everything mm-hmm. is related and really uh, reconnecting to that idea that humans are a part of nature, not above it, I think mm-hmm. is a important concept for us all to remember in the modern age. Right. I agree. And I think the um, I'm actually reading a book on that right now that talks about that, that connection with human and, and humans and plants. And um, it's really interesting to, you know, we think about plants as, you know, we may or may not eat, you know, (laughs) plants for our diet, let's say, for example. But then um, the book was talking about some different things about just that connection and how it, there's, there's messages or energy in that, right? That, that, over civilization has been transferred, but in the modern era, when we don't participate in that kind of lifestyle or, or, you know, eat in a, in a, you know, in a more plant friendly way, I guess, you know, eat more plants essentially that we're, we're missing a lot of that, that wisdom maybe, or that, that energetic messaging, I guess I would call it. Yeah. I like that example. I think kind of big picture uh, becoming 
disconnected from nature is really easy for humans to do today, Mm -hmm. but it's got consequences because we lose track of the, the rhythm of the larger field that we are within and a part of. Right. And that what you were just saying about um, everything is, you know, we are all brothers. I can't remember the term that you used there that they said, but the, you know, we are all one, like, right, everything is energy. So, and, and we're so, especially now, it's so focused on us versus them, right? But we're all, we are all the human race, right? And we all have, we all share common things. And, you know, forgetting that, I think, is, it makes things difficult, especially when, you know, especially now, I think. Yeah, I do too. And I think in the, in the modern age in which we live, we've really got to rethink the very uh, meaning of winning to your point. Right, you know, right. We all grew right. up or read history or you think about the Roman Colosseum. It was uh, kill or be killed or mm-hmm. in sports to win, you had to defeat someone else. But I think in the modern world where we're all so connected, where the world has become so flat and we really are a single human tribe, we've got to change the definition of winning. And the simple way I like to talk about it now is that winning isn't winning unless everybody's winning. Yeah, yeah. And everybody's... Yeah, <laughs> I could go on about that, but I'm, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about your new book, The Seventh Power. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and what drove you to write the book? Yeah, so I had this uh, real epiphany because my own voice condition about how leadership might uh, invert itself and give power to others. And then I had about a decade to actually test that approach on our own company. And I saw how transformative it was for us and the people who are a part of the company. And so that led me to kind of get out in the world and test some of these ideas or research them a bit more broadly. So the book is a, it's a bit of a travel learning experience. It actually starts on the Navajo reservation in Northern Arizona and it ends up in Kiev in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I had no idea at the time where, where I was going to start with this book <laughs> or end, but that's where it took me. There are seven stops which accumulate what I come to talk about in the book as seven lessons for the age of shared leadership. I love how you're... Um how you talked about when you went to the Indian reservation on a whim and how you just followed it. Right. And even with this book, right. You didn't know when you started where it was going to end, but being able to follow that inner voice or that inner guidance that you, you know, that you got. And actually I love stories like that because it, I think to me, those make for the, that's, that's, that's the best way to learn or that's the best way to experience life is, not to have it all planned out in a map, right? To be able to follow those nudges and be like, hey, yeah, this this feels good to me right now. I'm going to go here and then I'm going to go there. And then you end up with a book. <laughs> yes, and I've come to talk about it the way you just described it. I talk about it as learning to follow. When I was a 
bit of a younger leader, quote-unquote, before my boy's condition. I tried to constantly be scripting out the future. <laughs> oh, I know. I've been doing that, really, too. <laughs> you can't really do it that way. It's yeah. more about turning inward, listening to your own true voice, mm -hmm. and kind of releasing yourself a bit to the care of the universe and yeah. being willing to jump on those seemingly whimsical things that speak to you. Yes, and we talk about that, or I do on the show a lot, about being able to just um, trust, right? There's a lot of trust that comes in that that's not necessarily something most of us enjoy, right? We want to we want to have that map. We want to know that I'm going to be safe. But there's the element of trust that, you know, I, I think it's almost, it's, it's a required part of living, right? If you, you know, otherwise we're going it, to, it, we I don't know, at least for me, I felt stuck yes. or, you know. You know, so, I might even I might even say if I could just to build on what you've been talking about. Yeah. I think this is another piece of relearning. You know, we've been we've been almost engineered now socially as humans to uh, leap with our brain and to kind of be very disciplined mm -hmm. and secure in our approach. And while certainly pieces of that are important. I think we are ultimately aspiring to follow our hearts in a bigger, deeper way. And yeah. that's where the real growth lies. Oh, I agree for sure. Can you give us an example from your book of one of the stops where maybe something, I'm sure the whole thing surprised you, but maybe, you know, one of your favorite stories about your process of writing it or anything that stands out to you? Yeah, sure. Well, I think the least expected stop I ended up making was in Kiev in the yeah. Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I had uh, wanted to write a chapter about this idea that overreaching has consequences. What that meant to me is uh, leaders with the most power and the upper hand abusing it. Mm -hmm. So I ended up reading a bit about a event in the early 1930s in the Ukraine uh, called the Holodomor, H-O-L-O-D-O-M-O-R, which translated uh, means forced starvation. And as crazy as this sounds, or maybe doesn't when you think about human history, Stalin and the Soviet Communist Party uh, decided to essentially starve the Ukrainian peasants to death. Oh and over the span of about 24 months in the heart of the breadbasket of Europe, somewhere between five and seven or eight million Ukrainians died of starvation. And I actually was able to interview a couple of the last uh, remaining survivors, these would have been people now in their 90s mm -hmm. that were five or six years old when it happened, just old enough to um, have remembered it. And, you know, I think what sticks with me there is that um, these leadership choices have consequences. Right. And yes. those consequences have a long tail. Here we are, you know, here I was almost... 80 or 90 years later and mm -hmm. um, dealing with an event that, that just had a massive impact on millions of people's lives and it was all really needless, just wasted 
activity created by leaders trying to gain too much control. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's uh, those kinds of stories is you know they're it, it, it's almost it's that cognitive dissonance I think is the word. It's just almost too much to believe. You know what I mean? It's so it's so terrible. It's like you can't hardly believe it when when you read things like that. And to think that what what you just said, yeah, leadership has consequences, and you know it it matters. And um, wow, that's that's a that's I'm sure that was difficult to see and and talk to them about and you know be there. Yeah, and I think your, and to your point, what it did for me is it made it very real. It really humanized something yeah, that, yeah. That, mm-hmm. that took it from a history book to here's a, here are real individuals who remember this, who remember watching their parents starve to death. And to be a child. Their and, siblings yeah. starve to death, Ugh. right? It really put a, it really humanized it. Oh boy, yeah. Um, well, we're almost out of time, <laughs> and I could talk to you for a long time because I love how our conversation has been, especially when you know talking about your just your change in leadership style and how that that shifted from something that initially sounds like a terrible thing, but has transformed your life. I, I, it sounds like in such a positive way, and all the employees, and I'm sure everybody that you come in contact with. Yeah, excuse me, that's what it feels like for me. This was originally a something I only thought about as a liability mm-hmm. or a hindrance or a problem that really was a big, big gift and invitation in disguise. Yeah, and I think, but you chose it to be that, right? Because somebody else could have had the same thing happened and not went the way you did. I think, you know, the power of choice in your story is so amazing because you you chose to look at it that way yes and that's what the phrase the seventh power stands for it's actually a suit phrase but it honors the power of the individual human spirit so mm-hmm. stuff it's happening to us all the time externally that we can't control but we always have choices yes. uh, that we're making every day, all day, about how we act and respond. I agree, 100%. 100%. Um, okay, so before we wrap up, is there a piece of advice you would give the audience members, something that um, you'd like to leave them with, or something maybe they could do today to start looking at things differently? Yeah, I love that question. I've thinking a lot in this kind of crazy, overwhelming time we're all navigating about that lovely thought from Gandhi about becoming the change we wish Mm -hmm. to see in the world. Yeah. And that when change feels overwhelming, I think you can really ground it by just turning back inward and trying to become it. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And so simple too, right? We often think these things have to be these, you know, these big, you know, oh, it's going to be too much. But it's that, you know, that decision inward every day, all day, that really is what I think, you know, helps people with with change. So, well, Kevin, awesome. It's been so amazing to talk to you. I want to leave the, or talk about your contact information and where the readers can find um, your books. So, 
Your website is kevinhancock.com. And I'm going to link to all this in the show notes so the listeners can can get to this. But um, And both of your books are on Amazon as well. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, the website's actually kevindhancock.com. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, no, Kevin no. D. Hancock. And, uh, I see that. Yeah, and, and you can reach me there, find lots of resources there, and access the books there as you can on Amazon. Awesome. Okay. I'll link to that in the show notes. And so before I, I close out, as I do with all the guests, I want to talk about the songs that you picked this week. So the intro song is called Guardian by Alanis Morissette. So can you talk about that song and why you chose it? Yeah, it reminds me of Pine Ridge and the people there. I'm looking uh, at yeah. the first two lines. You, yeah. you who smiled when you're in pain. And you who soldier through the profane, mm-hmm. and then this whole promise that that our country made to be their guardians, and how that whole promise to begin with was uh, messed up and poorly executed. So that's mm-hmm. why that song's meaningful for me. That is, that's so powerful. I don't think I'd ever. I'd... Love Alanis Morissette, but I don't think I've ever listened to the lyrics of that song until you picked it for the, and I was looking at it before the show. So that's, um, that's a great pick. I like that. Um, and then your outro song was Imagine by John Lennon. Do you want to talk about that one? Yeah, that one to me is just about recognizing the human constructs we boxed ourselves into mm-hmm. and imagining a world without them and what might be possible. It reminds me of that small but powerful question we contemplated today on your show of what if everybody yes. felt trusted, <laughs> respected, valued, and heard. So that's I was why just I thinking like that. that one. Yes, I was just thinking that when you said that. I was like, yeah, that's that's such a great tie-in. Um, I agree. It's totally totally true. Well, Kevin, it's been amazing talking to you and learning about your leadership style and just your perspective, I think is so needed right now. So I want to thank you for coming on the show. I loved it, Sloan. It was great to be with you. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Okay. That's it for this week on our topic of strengthening through listening. I'd love to know what you think of the episode. If you have questions, you can email me sloanfremont at gmail.com and you can visit my website sloanfremont.com. You can also find me on Instagram at Sloan Fremont. And if you like the podcast, remember, subscribe, rate, review, and tell all your friends. Thanks for listening. And I will talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.